Welcome to Special Relationship, a podcast from Mike and The Economist. I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. And I'm John Prado from The Economist. Donald Trump has a very scary message for the American public. The election might be fixed. The Republican nominee, who's trailing Hillary Clinton in the run-up to November 8th, has claimed the vote might be rigged against him. During the final presidential debate, Trump even hedged on whether he'd accept the final outcome at all. Do you make the same commitment that you will absolutely accept the result of this election? I will look at it at the time. I'm not looking at anything now. I'll look at it at the time. At that debate in Las Vegas, I talked to a former Clinton aide, Mo Alethi, who said Trump's take could have a bad ripple effect on U.S. democracy. I think this is the single most dangerous thing that he has done from the beginning of this campaign. What he is doing by talking about widespread voter fraud and a rigged election is undermining the fundamental democracy, our fun, the, the fundamental tenets of our system of government. But Ben Carson, who ran against Trump for the GOP nomination, said the fears could end up being fact. If we have the ability to send men to the moon and the ability to make sophisticated electronic equipment and do complex operations, surely we have the ability to stop voter fraud. Are you worried that the election might not be reliable no matter who wins? Uh, it is It is certainly something that uh, I think a logical person could conclude. Democracies need different kinds of rules to function. There are the written ones, like how many electoral college votes Florida has. Then there are the unwritten ones, the norms, conventions, whatever you want to call them, which are just as important and maybe even more so. The general expectation that the election will be fair and that the loser will concede to the winner is a pretty fundamental one in American democracy. Trump's statements on election rigging stomp all over it. Despite a lack of evidence that wide-scale voter fraud is even possible in modern U.S. elections, Trump's message seems to be working, at least on his fans. One recent poll found as many as two-thirds of Trump voters think it will be common for non-citizens to cast votes. And the problem goes even further. Another new survey found fewer than half of Americans have great faith that their vote will be counted accurately in November. In this episode, we're going to talk about election rigging. We'll start on Pennsylvania Avenue in the George W. Bush White House, and we'll end up in Kenya. Joining us by phone is Dana Perino. She served as the first female Republican White House press secretary during the administration of President George W. Bush. She's now a host of Fox News Channel's The Five and of the podcast I'll Tell You What with Chris Steierwald. Dana, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I like the way you say I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> well, you tell us what, which is, first of all, we wanted to know, what do you make of Donald Trump and his supporters uh, sort of pushing this whole idea that the election might be rigged in some way? What, what, is, what does that mean to you? Well, I think it's the sign of a campaign that is worried it's going to lose. Um, and I think that it is also somebody who wants to further erode trust in public institutions in America. Um, public institutions as a whole are not doing well across America. I mean, um, from Congress to um, the media to the church, uh, even sports has taken a beating. I think the only institution that has a positive favorability rating in America right now is the military. And one thing that you can count on in America over the past 200 years is that we have been able to hold together our republic. Um, we have peaceful transitions of power every four years. There are concerns about voter fraud in certain areas at some points, but there is no evidence of full-scale or widespread voter fraud. 
Um, and I think it's very unfortunate to suggest to supporters that that might be the reason you would lose rather than it be the personal responsibility of the candidate to have not been able to persuade enough voters to vote for him or her. Dana, so it sounds like you think this is partly a question of getting excuses in early. But I also wonder if there's something else going on, which is that people lead such separate political lives, such that if you're a Trump voter, you might never have met somebody who's backing Hillary Clinton. And likewise, if you're a Clinton supporter, you may never come across somebody kind of socially or in your family who supports Donald Trump. Is there a bit of that going on as well, that people see their own experience, compare it to what the polls say and say, hang on, you know, that can't be right, particularly if you're a Trump supporter. Yeah. And in fact, I saw a study yesterday about um, the social media habits of people across the board, whether they're Republican, Democrat, Independent, or for the Green Party or Libertarian. And what we tend to do with humans is we seek out people who agree with us. It's sort of like me. For, uh, since 1995, when I started on Capitol Hill as a, as a press secretary, I started reading the Wall Street Journal Review and Outlook section. And that's the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. It helped shape my worldview. I like what I read there. Um, as a press secretary, then I also read the New York Times editorial page because I needed to know what was going on. And I always I'd be like, what in the world are they talking about? So in, I, even, I noticed this in myself, even though I try to be a fairly well-rounded news consumer as I need to be so I can do my job uh, properly. But it is true that we tend to follow our friends or people who agree with us. And that means that you're probably getting a skewed view of the overall landscape. One of the things I try to do in my work is to take a step back and to say, yes, I understand that it might sound really good to your primary supporters. Like, so Donald Trump has about 40% of the country supporting him in the, in the primaries. That's not enough to win a national election. And I think he spent a lot of time trying to rewin that same 40% over and over again. And it's true. If you go to a Trump rally, people say, I, haven't, I don't know a single person that would ever vote for Hillary Clinton. In your family, that might be the same on the other side, right? That they, would, they don't know a single person that would ever vote for Trump. That's one of the reasons that the Trump campaign has said that there are, in their opinion, many secret Trump voters. So people who plan to vote for Trump, but would never say so because they don't want the um, public scrutiny or the criticism that would come with that. Now, there's no evidence of that. It could be true. Um, but I also think it could be true on the other side, too. How many people, especially maybe Republican women, uh, might be looking at this election and saying, I don't think I can pull the um, lever for Donald Trump. And they might be wanting to decide to vote for Hillary Clinton. I read an article in Pennsylvania after a big focus group that they'd done across the state there of Republican women who were on the fence. Some said to their family they were planning to vote for Clinton, and one of them was told, don't even come for Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Oof, that's rough. So I think that it is happening across the board. You know, tensions are high. Emotions are running hot. Interestingly, the election will have already seen about 40% of the country that's going to vote um, cast their ballots before Election Day because of early voting in many of the states. And as far as as far as what this is going to mean, I mean, we've seen, obviously, contested elections before. We don't know if this is going to be a very clear cut result. But obviously, you know, uh, back in 2000, there was a, a, a bit of uh, a bit of drama there. How do you think that plays out in terms of how somebody can govern and how the, the sort of political process goes on? I do think that George W. Bush was able to show that it's possible because even after that 36 days in Florida, 
where the vote goes back and forth. It's finally George W. Bush up by 537 votes, and the Supreme Court calls it for George W. Bush, basically by saying that the recount is done. And Al Gore gave a fairly gracious uh, concession speech. And then what happens? George W. Bush takes office, and immediately he works with Democrats in the Congress, and he passes his tax cut bill, No Child Left Behind, and implemented the faith-based initiative. So that's actually, I think, a really good example of what can happen even after a hotly contested election year. But our politics are very polarized. And so whoever wins on Election Day, their base is going to pull them either further to the right or to the left. And the Republicans have had a big split this year. And some people have described it as a civil war. I think that's true. But I also think that the Democrats' civil war is coming because no matter what Hillary Clinton does if she becomes president, it will not be pure enough for the left. And you can bet that the Bernie Sanders voters and the Elizabeth Warren supporters are going to try to keep pulling her to the left, even if her instincts are not to do so. Let's imagine for a moment that Hillary Clinton wins. There's a Clinton presidency, but Republicans hang on to either the House or to the Senate or to both. Can you imagine the kinds of bipartisan bills being passed that we saw in the early part of George W. Bush's presidency or during parts of Bill Clinton's presidency? Or do you think the parties are so far apart now that that's actually impossible? It's hard to say. Um, I think partly the other the thing that is going to drive this is that we have a Supreme Court vacancy. And I don't see the Congress voting on Merrick Garland, the current um, nominee that Barack Obama had sent up. Uh, I don't see them doing that in the lame duck. So I think that that would be the next president's first uh, big fight, right? And that would take up a lot of time and energy. And so if you have a 100-day plan, the Supreme Court, obviously that's an important one, but that doesn't really get you where you need to be from a policy perspective. And frankly, I think it's very hard to say what either of these two candidates would do in the first 100 days. um, Donald Trump laid that out in a speech at Gettysburg last Saturday, along with some other things. But Hillary Clinton really hasn't done that yet. Like, I don't think anybody could say what legislative agenda she would pursue in that first hundred days. I, I, maybe they're waiting to tell us, but it's not been a really a campaign where you can guess what the big issue is going to be. And there's no driving emergency except for the Supreme Court vacancy. What do you think are going to be the long-term ramifications, no matter who wins, of all this talk about the elections being rigged or fixed or that the system is not fair? Because we see in other parts of the world where there are actually elections that are fixed, uh, where the system isn't reliable and, and, and the stuff isn't real. I mean, do you think that Americans are right to be worried in some regard? You do see cases where where uh, votes don't get counted, for example, or machines are broken, things like that. Um, it's it's kind of scary. Well, I think that um, Donald Trump has benefited from being uh, the master of imprecise language. So the, when he says rigged, I think he just means like the fix is in. Um, the, the media is going to go for Hillary, therefore um, you know, she's going to be president. When I hear rigged, That, to me, sounds like votes are being stolen. So I think he's playing a little fast and loose with the language so that no matter what happens um, on election night, let's say he wins, he can say, I was able to overcome the rigged system. If he loses, he can say, I told you there was a rigged system. So it's quite manipulative in terms of public perception for his um, uh, supporters. And the, the thing is about... Uh, an election, it really, you can't be robbed if it isn't close. If the result is so overwhelming, 
I think that will sow a lot of doubt into people's minds that it is rigged or stolen, except in this idea that a lot of his supporters might just think in general things are rigged against them. And that is something that both candidates, both parties, and even if you're nonpartisan, we do need to, to really consider this. We are facing something greater than the um, industrial revolution when it comes to the upcoming economic uh, con- consequences of the technologies that we're developing. For example, just today, there's a story about um, Uber um, and driverless cars. And one of the first things they're going to do is deliver beer um, to distributors. And you can just see in the future that truck drivers are going to be out of a job. So then what do we do as a society when you have even more people out of work and those jobs are not coming back, not from China, they're not coming back from the robots or from Uber's uh, driverless cars. There's just some really big issues that are on the table, and we've really not been able to talk about them very much because in this election, there's a news cycle that changes every three hours or so, and it's mostly personality-driven and based on the character of either Clinton or Trump. So Donald Trump is deliberately ambiguous with his language when he talks about rigging, as you say, but he has also said some things about how his supporters need to watch the polling stations very carefully because in some communities, we really need to keep an eye on those people to make sure that they don't steal the election which seems like more of a nod towards traditional ideas of vote rigging and ballot stuffing and election stealing. Do you think that when this election is over, there'll be some lasting damage to the unwritten rules that govern America's democracy? You know, the the rule that says elections are fair, um, the convention that says that the loser concedes, or do you expect things to go back to normal fairly swiftly? I am optimistic that it's the latter. I am prepared to see what happens because it could be the former. Um, I was there um, in January 2009 when George W. Bush invited all the former living presidents and Barack Obama to the Oval Office for a private luncheon. Um, And then I got to be there when they all took a picture together. And I thought, what a remarkable moment to show the world that over and over again, we get this right. Um, I think we'll get it right again, although there is a report today um, with a quote from Uh, the Trump campaign saying that they have three voter suppression strategies going on right now. Again, that could be imprecise language in that they're trying to reduce turnout for Hillary Clinton by driving down her very meager approval rating. That that could be true. But when I hear voter suppression, that means that you're out there actively trying to discourage people from voting or like those old tricks of telling people that the voting day has been move to Wednesday. So make sure you don't come in and into the city and waste your time. Like that kind of stuff has happened in the past. To me, that's voter suppression or intimidation. Um, I think that every state is going to have to be on the lookout for it. Um, but hope that's just, I guess I have to hope that it all goes smoothly. Dana Perino, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Coming up, we'll talk with someone who has seen both actual election rigging and the dangerous consequences of contested elections up close and personal. Joining us now is Daniel Knowles. Daniel lives in Kenya, which he uses as a base to report on sub-Saharan Africa for The Economist. Before that, he sat next to me in The Economist's DC office. Daniel, you've reported on a couple of elections this year that were rigged. So how does a government that does actually rig elections go about doing it? Well, first you start, you know, long before polling day by trying to kind of inflate your vote and diminish the opposition's vote. So 
you know, so you have control of things like the voter roll. So take Gabon, you know, Gabon had its election in um, August this year and end of August. And, um, you know, long before the election, the population of Franceville, which is the second city supposedly in Gabon um, and the home of the president Ali Bongo uh, and, and his father, who was also president Omar Bongo, you know, supposedly has this very large population based on the census, which nobody really believes. So you start like like that, you inflate the numbers. Then the next thing you do is on polling day, you know, you make it much easier for your voters to get to the polling stations. So, you know, you pay them, it's a typical way, and you stop your opponents getting to the polling stations. You know, if that's not enough, you then get into the counting. And what you tend to do there is you, you know, you try and delay the counting, you push out the opposition um, watchers from the stations, from the, where the counting's happening. You take a long time and that way you can kind of bring extra ballots in. And yeah, and if it comes to it, then you just kind of inflate everything. So in again, in Gabon, election this year, they'd done all this stuff in advance, but it clearly wasn't enough. So when, when it came to kind of announcing the result, which they put off several times while they said counting was still going on, it turned out that in Franceville, Bongo's homeland, he got 99.9% of the vote um, of a 95% turnout, something like that. And at what point does somebody say, you know what, this doesn't look quite right? And and what happens at that point? Uh, So usually about, you know, six months or a year or more before the election, the opposition in most African countries are often talking about this in advance. So, for example, Kenya's election isn't until August next year. But for the last kind of six months or so, the opposition led by Raila Hedinga, who's the kind of veteran opposition leader here, has already been talking about the Electoral Commission, which has some allegations of corruption of some of its members. They've had protests against that. There's negotiations about that um, in Zambia, which had its election in July. Um, similar sort of thing, you know, long before the vote, the opposition were already making a big fuss about it. So, so you try and make a big fuss about it in advance so that the government feels unable to do this stuff, you know, too openly. And then what you do is on the vote, what uh, you tend to have is you have your, your own people, party members in the counting stations. And if they get thrown out or whatever, then you you raise the alarm. And then what often happens in a lot of countries now is you have parallel counting. So in certain polling stations, you will have people from NGOs or whatever who are counting the votes independently, and they all have a running tally. And if it kind of significantly differs, because it's like a polling exercise, really, you know, there's a margin of error. But if it significantly differs by sort of, you know, five percentage points or something, um, from what the government or the official results are saying, then you raise the the concerns then. Although one of the problem has been in, you know, a lot of these races is that they are actually often very close anyway. So you're kind of independent counting doesn't necessarily prove the difference between an election where the rigging has brought you one or two percentage points over, you know, over the line, which might be all you need as a kind of um, government candidate if you've done everything in advance that you needed to. So, Daniel, I guess there are two categories of countries on your beat here, just to simplify enormously. One where elections are rigged and the opposition, you know, says the elections are rigged. And in fact, they're right. And ones where elections are not rigged. But even so, the opposition might claim that they are, which is, I guess, closer to the sort of American analogy at the moment. 
when you have those democracies where you know kind of broadly the vote is fair and you have the opposition crying foul what does that do to the sort of way that you know kind of democracy works in those countries well i think in in sub-saharan africa with a few exceptions places like botswana and south africa have quite well trusted electoral systems but broadly speaking nobody in trusts electoral systems of any sort and as an opposition party your assumption is that it's going to be rigged and what you often hear from kind of pr people from government sides is well you know the candidate for example i heard this about you know yari Museveni of uganda yeah the candidate uh, he may be rigging the election but he's popular enough he doesn't really need to he's just doing it for emphasis so there's generally an assumption that elections will be rigged to some extent but the oppositions will always claim this because often they have a point but also second it's a way of motivating their own candidates and there's often a dynamic in certain african countries um kenya is a good example whereby the government doesn't rely very much on on straight rigging they you know there may be questions here or there about election commissions or voter rolls but for the most part in kenya you know the government can use its incumbency to to buy votes essentially so it doesn't need to rig um and the opposition tends to you know ends up kind of claiming rigging and sometimes exaggerating that and and there is a pattern in in some countries which include kind of you know the opposition will will claim that an election has been rigged because that's a way of exciting their voters to get out and in fact it becomes a kind of device of of voter intimidation um you know if you say you know our people are going to have our, the election stolen from us go and protect the ballot go and protect the the polling stations you know from the government rigors that's that's a strategy that opposition parties can use too to try and intimidate their opponents you know in the absence of money violence can be quite a good way to to get your vote out and to to intimidate the opposition or to intimidate your opponents i'm glad you brought that up because i think that plays into something that we've been talking about a lot here which is actual turnout if people uh, if people in these countries have the sense that the election is going to be fixed anyway and maybe their vote doesn't matter because we we magically know the outcome before anybody even gets to the polls i mean does that have the effect of making people say sort of eh, i might as well stay home why should i why should i bother politics in africa in general in very general terms is very raw you know these are almost universally very young populations you know your um two-thirds of your vote might be under the age of 30 so you have these kind of very young electorates and and politics a lot of money spent on it on getting people out and um it's hard to separate out the kind of enthusiasm of very big rallies and and you know people turning out in huge numbers and queuing up from the sort of general sense that you know nothing really changes and and whatever i mean people involved in have to be brought into politics with yeah money and inducements quite often and um if you do look at the turnout figures in say zambia you know which is one of the more competitive democracies in um sub-saharan africa has had a couple of times where um the ruling party has lost and conceded power um yeah you have these these fairly low turnouts so daniel if violence is a tool both in terms of getting people to the ballot boxes and occasionally after and an election has been contested and there are accusations of rigging. You know, what has that looked like on some of the 
races you've covered Gabon say well yeah so take Gabon where you know it was a very straightforwardly rigged election um you know it was already weighted in front of in in favor of Ali Bongo um and when it came to it you know he obviously lost he lost by a huge margin it seems because the voting the the voting patterns that came out afterwards seemed so indicative of rigging it was astonishing and what happened immediately afterwards was that protesters went and um well they set fire to the national assembly they set fire to cars in the streets and they you know they made a, a big kind of show of protest and it was put down by the police and i think you know, for the opposition then, there was, uh, you know, if you if your election has been stolen from you, you don't have many um, means of protesting, especially in the case of, of Gabon, the um, the loser or the, the, the supposed loser, um, Jinping, is a former African Union diplomat who I think nobody had great sympathy for because, in you know, in the past when African elections were stolen and oppositions cried foul, he was the guy as head of African Union, the chairman of the African Union, saying, oh, no, the African Union respects the results. Um, but, yeah, so violence was a way of getting kind of attention, um, you know, getting the international community to pay to pay attention and to sit up. And there was a moment in Gabon where, you know, it looked very tense and, the, and there was talk of the French stepping in in the way that they did after the disputed election in 2010-11 in Ivory Coast, um, and they stepped in and pushed out um, Lauren Bagba, who's the loser of that election, and refused to concede. Um, so, yeah, essentially, you know, elections often come with crises for this precise reason that it's to do with exercising power and violence is one of the things that you can do after an election's been stolen from you. So, Daniel, what's the role of the candidate in situations like this when there is a contested election or a quote-unquote rigged election? I mean, does the does the person who's actually on the ballot encourage supporters to to get out in the streets or to protest or to engage in violence? Or or does the person say, OK, I accept the results and I'll try again next time and we should have a, a peaceful transition of power or what happens there? Well, I think it depends an awful lot on the country. So, for example, Zambia, where it had a very close election and very much disputed, you know, what uh, Hakiende Hichilema, who was the, the losing uh, opposition candidate, did was he went to the courts and he contested it. Um, and there was no post-election violence in Zambia. And even though the election looked very much like it was, was rigged, it's very difficult to prove that, but looks like it, you know, it's, it will go through the court system and... and um, nobody in the kind of political elite there wants to to throw the whole system under the bus. But um, in other countries, and for example, we're coming up to the end of the term of uh, the president of, of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and there's not going to be an election. He's refused to organize one. But there, you know, you have politicians who are far more willing to um, organize and incite their followers to, you know, to more kind of messy, violent, confrontational dispute. So it depends a lot on the country. But uh, yeah, politicians, you know, are able to do a lot. They're able to encourage their supporters to do a lot. So it more depends on what the incentives are for them. Daniel Knowles in Nairobi. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. That's it for this week. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We were produced by Alan Habachak. Thanks, Alan. And thanks to everyone who listens. If you want to help us out, you can do that by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. 
I'm Celeste Katz with Mike and at Celeste Katz NYC on Twitter. I'm John Prado with The Economist or at John Prado on Twitter. We'll see you next week, just a few days before Election Day itself. 